Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Just enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler to book your first real vacation for 2021. Best of all, using Omeo saves you time and money. That's a win-win in our books. Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com and use the code OMIO5 at checkout. Valid until July 31st for new users on all modes of transport. It's just the pick me up 2021 needs. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. The Oracle Network. And welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I am also pretty good. I'm a little toasty, but that's all right. Same. Uh, the air in my office is terrible. And I record in a closet, so it's pretty <laughs> uh, insulated. So we're awesome. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yes. So this week is our last week of listener requests. We've finally reached the end. We've finally done it. Yep. We did it. We made it. We did it. Yay. We made it. Looks like we made it. And this week's episode is going to be dedicated to Christina of the Crime Lore Podcast. And she didn't pick a topic. So I chose one for her that I thought she might like. So hopefully she likes it. Fingers crossed. We're going to be discussing lover's eye jewelry. Ooh. I think you'll actually dig it. Lover's eye. Sounds Mm -hmm. ominous. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) All right. Information was pulled from the following sources. 2020 JSTOR Daily Article by Allison C. Meyer. 2019 Artsy Article by Alexa Gothart. 2019 Forbes Article by Kyle Roderick. 2018 Katie Considers Blog Post. 2014 National Jeweler Article by Michelle Graff. 2012 Birmingham Museum of Art Exhibition article, 2012 In Collect article by Graham C. Botcher, Botcher, one of those. One of them. First Dibs, the study blog post by Abigail R. Essman, Britannica, the International Gem Society, an article by Douglas Mm -hmm. S. Legrand GG, which stands for Graduate Gemologist, which I did not know, and Wikipedia. Nice. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. So jewelry has been around since the dawn of man. The earliest records of jewelry date all the way back to 25,000 years ago when it was made from such simple materials as shells, bones, feathers, and colored stones. As time progressed, the materials may have changed, but many of the functions stayed the same. So pins and brooches, for example, 
morphed from the clasps that were used to hold cloths together. Okay, that makes sense. And rings and pendants that we're so familiar with today come from their more functional uses as signs of rank, authority, and seals. Mm, Okay. And it probably won't surprise anyone when I say that the wealthy were the trendsetters, regardless of the time period. Mm -hmm. And in the Georgian era, a new trend grew out of an existing genre. So portraits have been a popular piece for centuries, and it was and continues to be quite common to have tiny portraits of your loved one as part of your daily adornments. Mm-hmm. You think of all the like portrait tattoos that people sport these days. Well, and like they, they had like the little keepsake lock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like cameos was a big thing too. Yeah. Oh, could, what if you made a cameo of your actual mom? That'd be weird. I mean, I'm but sure that they did. did. <laughs> sure the wealthy did. Right. But the trend took a twist when it came to miniatures, specifically eye miniatures. Okay. So these portraits would typically be painted on Asian elephant ivory and watercolor, though some were painted on vellum or card, many on canvases that were no bigger than a pinky nail. So this is another write your name on a grain of rice. Yeah. Only fancier. <laughs> so these are like, <laughs> small so when i say miniature they're small i think the biggest one that i saw was like the size of a quarter yeah so the portraits would sometimes be surrounded by a number of precious stones such as pearls garnets amethysts turquoise and coral and surprisingly the use of diamonds was actually quite rare when it came to this type of jewelry it'd be really expensive Mm -hmm. i mean i get it and i wonder how rare diamonds were at the time Mm -hmm. Dubbed lover's eyes, miniatures like this were first seen around the French Revolution and quickly jumped from the mainland to jolly old England thanks to one specific royal. Do I know them? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. So before I go further, I need to lay down some context. So even though history has shown that royals tend to keep it within the family. (laughs) Anemia. In 1701, the Act of Settlement threw a monkey wrench in that incestuous practice when it Uh forbid British royals, especially anyone who would be the future head of the Church of England, from marrying a Catholic. Ooh, that's that's quite the rule. Yes. And why does this matter, you might ask? Because Mm -hmm. the Prince of Wales, the soon-to-be George IV, wasn't going to let that stop him from going after who he wanted. Mm-hmm. Unlike his father, King George III, who was fiercely loyal to his wife, this bad boy collected women like Ash Ketchum collects Pokemon. Oh, no, that's so many women. All the women. So many Pokeballs. Oh. The 1780s brought about his most infamous affair when he set his sights on Maria Fitzherbert, the twice married and Catholic commoner. Uh-oh. She's got two strikes. Yep. She's Catholic and she's quote unquote basic. Yep. Maria Fitzherbert, who was born July 1756 as Mary Ann Smythe, came from an old Roman Catholic family and was married twice prior to drawing the attention of the Prince of Wales. Hmm. Her first husband, Edward Weld, died in 1776, a year after they'd shared their I do's. And her second husband, Thomas Fitzherbert, died in 1781, just three years into their marriage. Did they die the same way? I couldn't find how they died. Did they smell of almonds? I was like, did they have some beef tea before they died? Yeah. 
good old beef tea. I don't know. Although at that time you could like you could die from just you could die from anything. Yeah. With the death of her second husband, Maria not only found herself once again alone at the age of twenty-four, but also quite wealthy. Within the span of two years, she'd become quite a popular figure in London society, which is when George made her acquaintance. Hmm. Despite the fact that she was Catholic and six years his senior, the 21-year-old George fell for her hard in 1784 and did everything in his power to woo her. He showered her with gifts and an endless supply of affection. One thing George seemed to forget was the fact that because of the 1772 Royal Marriage Act, he couldn't marry anyone without his father's consent until he was 25. Ooh, and that was four years away. And there was no way in hell his father was going to allow his heir to the throne to marry a Catholic. And also a common woman. And also a commoner. Because Mm -hmm. under royal law, Catholic widows were expressly forbidden from joining the monarchy. Why? It's not their fault their husbands died. Well, because they're Catholic. Their husbands died because they're Catholic. Therefore, you must die alone because you're Catholic. Mm-hmm. It's just not nice. Maria at first ignored his declarations, but after he dramatically staged a suicide attempt on the pretense that he couldn't live without her, a little needy, okay, she caved and accepted his proposal of marriage. However, she immediately regretted her decision the next day. Oh, no. And fled to the continent where she lived for more than a year, hoping that her absence would cool George's ardor. I doubt it did unfortunately for maria yeah only made him more determined than ever to win her affections yeah because he's the future king who would deny the future king on november 3rd 1785 at the age of 23 george wrote her another marriage proposal that closed with the words quote p.s i send you a parcel and i send you at the same time an eye if you have not totally forgotten the whole countenance I think the likeness will strike you, end quote. No. (laughs) I'm just imagining like a real eye. It's the eye of my father. A glass (laughs) eye. (laughs) (laughs) Now we can be together forever. Right, I got his eye. (laughs) George had commissioned the famous British miniaturist, Richard Causeway, to paint a miniature of his own right eye that was set in a locket of an engagement ring. And it's unclear if this intimate act was what ultimately caused Maria to capitulate to his whims, the extent of the love letter, or a combination of the two. But either way, she returned to England, and the two of them were wed in a secret ceremony at her home in Mayfair on December 15, 1785. And it was officiated by Reverend R. Burt, who was a clergyman of the Church of England. Burt. Burt. Maria was 29 at the time of their marriage, which would have made. George 23. And that would have been really old. Yeah. Well, she's been widowed. So, I mean, not her fault. It's not like it was her first marriage. It was her first marriage at 29. Yeah. Getting over that thornback status. Yeah. Not long after their wedding, Maria also commissioned Richard to create a portrait of her eye, which she gifted to her new husband inside a locket. This clandestine token of affection inspired a number of the social elite to exchange eye portraits with those that they loved, whether they were married to them or not. Ooh. Yeah. So that's the new scandal. Whose eye are you wearing? 
Exactly. <laughs> so that's the thing. That's not my iris. Unfortunately for the pair, King George III forced the two to part when he arranged a marriage between his son and Princess Caroline of Brunswick. Mm. This move on his father's part had a dual purpose as George had a habit of spending money he didn't have. And this union with his cousin was used as a means to have Parliament forgive his debts with a number of creditors. Mm-hmm. Not long after this, Maria received a formal decision from the Pope that pronounced her as George's wife, thereby sanctioning her to take him back. The pair reconciled and she became his mistress during what she coined as the happiest years of her life. They parted once more in 1808 when George started to return to his old habits of seeing multiple women. Yeah, old habits die hard. Yep. I did read that in his marriage to Caroline, like they hated each other. Oh. They basically, like she did her duty to produce an heir for him, but. And that was it. Otherwise, she had wanted nothing to do with him. Yeah. Regardless of the fact that they were no longer together, upon his passing on June 26, 1830, at Windsor Castle at the age of 68, he died with Maria's miniature portrait about his neck. Regrets. Regrets. He has a few. (laughs) Although a surprisingly large amount of these intimate pieces have survived to this day, there's around an estimated thousand that are still around. Wow. It's really interesting that so many survived since the fad only lasted about a couple of decades. Yeah. People really didn't want to get rid of their loved one's eyes. Exactly. And due to the nature of the portraits, many of the subjects themselves have been lost to time. Mm -hmm. Miniatures were made in Western Europe, such as France and England, Russia, and as far away as America. The portraits, due to the mysterious nature of who they depicted, could be worn publicly as brooches, rings, bracelets, stick pins, and pendants. That makes sense. At this time in history, public romantic gestures were extremely limited by Georgian courtship rules. Okay. Because you had to maintain proper decorum. Mm -hmm. But with the introduction of lover's eyes, one was able to circumvent this ritual to an extent and keep their lover close. Oh. Fun fact, this repression of romantic courtship or the inability to properly express one's affections triggered more perverse practices, such as the act of keyhole spying and the rise in peeping toms. Awesome. Yep. Way to go. George. Georgian courtship rituals. No, it's just George. He ruined everything. Even though the fad itself started as a declaration of romantic affections, it soon spread to include family members including children, mm-hmm. as a form of mourning jewelry. I was just going to say, if they pass, mm-hmm. oh, creepy, but cute, but like... Mm. Several that have survived from the Victorian era would feature clouds in the miniature painting to signify that they had passed on to heaven. Hmm. Do they put clouds behind the eyes? Or like, either like above the eye or like below the eye. Interesting. Many of these mourning pieces would be surrounded by seed pearls, which signified the tears shed for the loss of a loved one. Sad. In many pendants created for this purpose, the reverse would hold locks of hair. Mm, Less sad, a little more creepy. Yeah. The sentimental jewelry would often contain small compartments on the reverse that were referred to as boxes that would contain simple, although sometimes elaborately plated hair work. So, you know, when you've seen some of those pieces where like the hair is very intricately woven into like a ring Mm -hmm. or something, it's like that. Okay. 
Okay. So the transition from jewelry to a more substantial memorial was the memory box, which was a small paper box that often contained an eye portrait and would hold a small object that had some special significance to the deceased or to their loved one. Okay. The fad started to wane when Queen Victoria was crowned in 1837, but the practice never died out entirely. In fact, Victoria herself commissioned a number of eye portraits from the royal court miniaturist, Sir William Ross. Its heyday lasted for almost 100 years, but it ended with the advent and broader application of photography. So the need for this type of portrait quickly began to fade. Yeah. So prior to photos, these paintings served as tiny tokens of affection that could be kissed, held against one's heart, and confided in when the object of their affection was far away. I'm so sad for them. Many artists who created these intricate and realistic depictions of the subject's eyes have been lost to history, but by far the most popular are Richard Cosway and George Engelhart. New York-based Alice Quartler, I hope I said that right, who is an antique jewelry dealer, is quoted in a, the study blog post as saying, quote, lovers' eyes are compelling pieces of wearable art. They suggest an intimate relationship between two people since the identity of the loved one is not revealed. Only the wearer knows whose eye it is, end quote. That's true, generally. Mm-hmm. And I know I mentioned the variety of reasons why these portraits were created, but I never mm-hmm. noted the different types of gazes that they depicted. Ooh, did they like change the pupil size? And some of the eyes looked a little bit different. So okay. obviously most showed more like adoring, lustful looks that conveyed like a sense of longing. Mm-hmm. But some took on a bit of a darker tone, such as one of censure or surveillance, almost as if attempting to exert a form of control over the wearer, such Ew. as ensuring they don't commit acts of infidelity. Gross, George would have done that. Yeah. And he himself (laughs) did that, like, just turns his eye away. Other objects that incorporated lover's eye portraiture included toothpick containers, snuff boxes, and other small containers that could be kept and easily hidden on one's person without having to be worn. Because, you know, not everybody likes wearing jewelry. The toothpick container is unsettling. Apparently, it was really common to carry toothpicks with you. I suppose they didn't brush their teeth that much. So you need to get that stuff out of your mouth somehow. I suppose. So you don't get the pyree. (laughs) Of those that have survived, several can be found at museums around the world, such as the Mm -hmm. Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, not to mention London's Victoria and Albert Museum. Nice. And the reason I mentioned the Birmingham museum as a source is because in 2012 they had an exhibition about lover's eye jewelry where there's a collector in Birmingham that has like one of the largest personal collections of lover's eye jewelry okay and they had like over a hundred pieces that they loaned to the museum to include in an exhibit which is pretty crazy yeah they're worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars probably no big deal it's fine yeah it's fine the jump change, you know. And that is the fun little story surrounding lovers' eye jewelry. Interesting, creepy, but also like kind of cute, but mm-hmm. creepy. Yeah, there are a lot of like independent artists that have taken up the practice of rec- recreating these again. 
Oh yeah, I can totally see why. And obviously they use a variety of different mediums. Mm-hmm. For various reasons, you cannot use ivory anymore to create these. Yeah, please don't. So please and don't do that. And actually I read somewhere that if you wanted to, if you happen to find a piece that was made on elephant ivory and you wanted to purchase it, you'd have to get like a special certificate like, saying I'm a bad person and I want this. <laughs> Or just saying that you obtained this piece legally and that you didn't uh, like buy it illegally. So if mm-hmm. you were to say buy it in Europe and come over to America with this like piece of ivory and someone were to stop you and be like, what the fuck? You, what the hell, man? <laughs> you, you could be like, I legally purchased this. I have the certificate that says, you know, but buying one today is, like I said, not great. thousands of dollars if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to find one that's original. Yeah. So, yeah. Crime Lore is a bi-weekly podcast that examines the intersections of folklore and true crime. Hosted by two trained folklorists, each episode starts with some piece of folklore. An urban legend, a murder ballad, a bunch of jokes. And then we look at the crimes that may have inspired that folklore. Do murderers really hide in the back seats of unsuspecting victims' cars? Is it really necessary to check your kids' Halloween candy? Is it ever appropriate to joke about murder? Along the way, we talk about what this folklore and these crimes tell us about our culture. What do they tell us about our anxieties, our perceptions, and our overall worldview? So check out Crime Lore at crimelorepod.com or on most major podcasting apps. And always check your backseat. Ostension happens. This week's podcast plug is the Crime Lore Podcast by our friend Christina. And what I love about this show is that it takes like common urban legend tropes, like the babysitter who was killed when the caller is inside the home. Yep. You know, that type of stuff. And it interjects real life stories that either inspired the legend or kind of spawned off of the legend. Ooh. Okay. So like go into the urban legend itself and then incorporate a case that has either similar structures to it okay yeah or was the one that inspired the urban legend itself interesting so it's a pretty fascinating twist on like the true crime genre Mm -hmm. so if it's if like urban legends and true crime like the babysitters club (laughs) like yeah if if that's something that like you are intrigued by the idea of having the two merge together you should check out crime lore or like are you afraid of the dark that's more apt yeah it's kind of like that yeah yeah So we'll have a link to that show in the show notes. It's really good. Go check it out. And this week's listener question is going to require some Googling on our parts. No. (laughs) Learning. Learning? Why? (laughs) The Cynic's Guide to Disney podcast wants to know. So obviously we're Leos. Obviously. (laughs) They want to know famous serial killers that are also Leos. What is similar about them? Oh, man. I remember I actually, there aren't many. There aren't many. But interestingly enough, there's a bit Battery. Bathory is a Leo who was accused of being a serial killer. Although we kind of debunked that in our episode where we covered her. Well, I could just say I too like to bathe in blood. No. (laughs) I love that blood. Oh, God. Myra Hindley. I'm looking at that list too. Are you looking at the 39 yeah, serial killers? 
She was easily seduced by Brady, who she said was the only man she'd ever met who had clean fingernails. That is disgusting. I don't go by that. That's <laughs> that's vile. Covet. Just wash your. She hair. would lure children into a moor where her partner would assault I, yeah. and murder them. Yeah, I remember that story. And then there's Jack Hunterweger. Vienna Strangler. So bold and overconfident. Mm. Common trope. Mm. Convinced everyone he was not a murderer, but a sensitive soul who went mad because he had grown up without a mom. Oh, the first year after his release, he killed eight women. I don't have much in common with that. (laughs) And he killed them the same way that he killed his first victims that landed him in prison. So he's very vain. Easily seduced by wealth. Ooh, the acid bath murderer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I read that and I couldn't say a thing because I was terrified. Oh, my God. That's a creative way. We know about years of it, Bathory. Anatoly Ono Priensko. Oh, he's the... Oh, this guy was bad. Yeah. The Beast of the Ukraine. He was a family annihilator. There's a lot of, like, bold, creative, confident... Yeah. But the Eggman. Carl Danke, the cannibal of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He used funerals to find his victims. Mm. And he was very inventive because in a time of intense poverty and farm failures in Poland, he just used people for various purposes. Who's this guy? The railroad killer? I wonder if we're supposed to think of traits that are similar, right? They overconfident. And stubborn and bold is very common traits. No, it treats with us. Oh, with us? Right? What traits, what traits do we have? Do we share? Says Leo astrology sign of famous serial killers and what is similar about them? What's similar about the serial killers? Oh, okay, good. Because I was like, I have a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> They're all bold, confident, strong-willed, and a lot of them are very creative. Yeah, like that's kind of a common theme. Like that's how they were able to get away with so many murders. And their methods of killing are also very creative. And a lot of them were obsessed with wealth more than mm-hmm. anything. Yep. Yep. A lot of them were greedy. Yep. Very stubborn. So many of it. Overconfidence. Overconfidence. Yeah. Bold. Like perceived generosity as well. That was the thing that that struck me too is they were very two-faced. Like they would... Yes. Be very generous, but at the same time, turn around and like murder you in a horrific manner. Mm. Be overconfident, believe they couldn't be caught by police. They were smarter than the police. Oh, the Cleveland Strangler. He lived next to a sausage factory and that's how he like got away with the bad smells coming out of his house. Mm. Blame it on the sausage factory. That is foul. They found 11 bodies in his house. That Alexander... Chica, the fur coat hunter. What? Nope. Nope. Oh, he was said that because all of his victims wore luxurious fur coats at the time of their deaths. So he went after older, older rich women. Mm-hmm. This one, Martha Rendell, I'm not happy about. She was a bossy stepmother who moved in with her first husband, her new husband who had several children from a previous relationship. She would give them hydrochloric acid whenever they complained about having a sore throat. <sighs> She sucked. She's generally not awesome person. Gypsy killer is on here too. 
He'd store his victims in a basement crawl space and in the attic of the home that he shared with his parents. And he would go after drug addicts or sex workers, which is great. So yeah, a lot of vain, bold, creative people who mm-hmm. were very good at hiding their true selves. Mm-hmm. And how awesome they actually were. Go Leos! on that note what's something good you'd like to share something good to counterbalance that so i don't know if anybody keeps track but there was one week where i was like something good might be happening but i don't know for sure um that good thing was i have a new job so i right now i'm in the process of doing the super fun thing of handing everything over and like marking my work and stuff and so that my former team can still be successful and I'm going to miss them a lot, but this is a better opportunity for me. So I'm really excited. And one of the things that I really loved was, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Slack, mm-hmm. but Slack is like a messaging site for like primarily for work. Mm-hmm. And you can have little emojis and gifts. And I immediately, upon being a part of my new team, wanted to see what their extra ones are because you can upload like new ones to the website. And if anyone's familiar with Party Parrot, they had a few Party Parrots. It's like a gif of like this rainbow parrot who's like shaking his head from side to side. They made it better by putting Guy Fieri's head on the Party Parrot. So it's the Fieri parrot and it is the only GIF I will ever use in Slack for work. So good luck to my coworkers. Tired of it. But it made me that more excited to be around them because I think we're going to get along just fine. Awesome. That's my good thing. What's your good thing? The day we recorded this is at like the tail end of a weekend that Thomas and I had together without the children. Thanks for watching them. And um, (laughs) so we did a date thing where on Saturday morning we went kayaking together for the first time, just the two of us. Mm -hmm. And that was really fun. It's kind of nice to go kayaking together and just kind of hang out. Yeah, like that. It's been fun to get out and get used to being on the water. My kayak that we ordered should be arriving, I think, sometime this week. So I probably won't take it out until next weekend because I'm going to be volunteering at Girl Scout camp this week. I'm probably going to be super tired when I get home at night and not going to want to do anything other than Mm -hmm. shower and lay down. So probably, yeah. So I may have to wait until the weekend to test drive my new kayak. Yeah, that's very exciting though. Mm -hmm. And it's a a collapsible kayak so I can take it places. That'll be interesting to see how well that holds up Mm -hmm. with the continual folding and unfolding. Mm -hmm. I'm going to assemble it in the patio when I first get it to see like how big it is. And also Mm -hmm. so I can watch the video of the guy showing you how to assemble it. Yeah, it makes sense. So there's a lot of things you got to do to assemble it. It's kind of like an origami thing. Oh, cool. Yeah. Good luck. Thanks. Hopefully I won't screw it up and then end up sinking in the middle of the... Like, you should do an update next week so we know that you're safe. Yep. Or I'll do an update next week. <laughs> she's not safe. Dwayne the top, she's drowning. All right, let's shut her down. Okay. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. You can mm-hmm. also find us on YouTube 
thank you to the people that subscribed last week when I was like, please subscribe and follow us because we are lonely over there. Keep doing we it. We have friends. We have friends. Thanks, friends. You can also send us some snail mail to our P.O. box, which has been very, very lonely. So That's lonely. Uh, we still haven't gotten our trampoline and clocks ticket. So uh, <laughs> if anybody, <laughs> yeah, could you imagine? That'd be so cool. But no, it's probably not gonna... But if you want to. <laughs> I mean, it's not, but you can if you want. This, this, but like, this, I don't know. It's fine. But like, fine. like a card is cool too. Thanks. <laughs> we like cards. Thanks. If you want to send us something, you can do so at Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. You can also email us. You should submit some questions because they are fun to answer. And you get a shout out on the show for sending us yep. a question. Yep. So you can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. You can also support us by leaving a five-star rating and review for the podcast, which is free. That such is as free. this one from Tallulah Von Duve from Great Britain, where she says, true crime, but not as intense. Five stars. <laughs> nice. I love older cases because they feel like childhood stories or legends. They are a little easier to digest after a long day. Yep. Check out this wonderful podcast. Definitely recommend. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Delula. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee to leave a one-time donation. You can also join us on Patreon for as low as a dollar a month. That gets you early ad-free access. And so much more if you decide mm -hmm. to donate at the five, ten, or fifteen dollar tiers. There is gonna be a sale at T Public. Sale, 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 sale. <laughs> where you can enjoy 35% off everything in our store from July 21st to the 25th. You should get on over there. Go on, yeah. I reactivated some designs by listener request. So if you would like them, check it out. And on that okay. note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime.